Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. How should we understand the contradiction between Genesis 11, verse 1, which says that the whole earth had one language, and Genesis 10, verse 5, 20, and 31, which references people having their own language or multiple languages? So in Genesis chapter 10, we have a genealogy that takes us from Noah to his sons to then their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who then spread out into what will eventually become the families of the earth, which is why Genesis chapter 10 is frequently referred to that genealogy as the table of nations genealogy. It explains where all the families of earth come from, essentially. When we evaluate genealogies, we need to understand that the content that is contained in those genealogies are often happening over the scope of time that the genealogy itself covers. And so recognizing that we move from the sons of Noah all the way down to the nations that eventually come from those sons, we shouldn't view all of the events that transpire in Genesis chapter 10 as preceding the events that transpire in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 then goes back to the immediate aftermath of the flood and the immediate children of the sons of Noah, rather than jumping to the end of where the genealogy in in, uh, chapter 10 leaves off, which is these whole nations that have developed. And so we have what we might call anachronisms, or these are events that are not happening in the chronological sequence of the Genesis narrative. So in, in Genesis 10, we have Uh, This description that from these in verse five, from these, the coastland people spread to their lands, each with their own language, by their clans and in their nations. Now, in chronological sequence, those events, that spreading development of peoples and their nationalities and their tongues, their languages, that happens subsequent to the events that will be described in the next chapter in Genesis 11. So in the scope of a genealogy, we're dealing with a larger swath of time. And so the events that are described there are not necessarily happening in the chronological order of the chapters in which we find them. Is it appropriate to draw comparisons between the tower that the men of Babel built with the technological advancements of today? I think that there are some comparisons that we can draw. I drew some of those in my sermon on Sunday. Human culture is always pushing the limits on what our humanity means. And because we're made in God's image and God has given us gifts of the ability to think and to exercise creativity, those gifts can be put to good or bad uses. And what we find in human culture so often is that culture is a reflection of the human heart. And insofar as our hearts as fallen human beings is dominated by pride, so much of the cultural artifacts that humankind produces are reflections of that pride. So just as the tower and the fortified city are reflections of the human heart to be self-sufficient and to be able to not depend on anyone else other than our own strength to provide our own security that we need, then to build towers that are reflections of our pride to be like God in ways that we envision for ourselves, we see those same kind of motives behind so many of the technological advancements uh, in our own culture today. And that's not to say that technological advancements are wrong or that they are inherently evil. Again, God gave us creativity. When we use our creativity and the development of our culture and society and technology and everything else 
as ways of reflecting God in the world and bringing him glory, then those are good uses of those things. But when we use technology or culture or society in ways that reflect those primal impulses, or I should say those fallen primal impulses, to be self-reliant and to exercise our pride, that's when technology becomes a reflection of a a Babel-like impulse to reach to the heavens. Is humanity having multiple cultures and languages the result of sin? So like in a perfect world, would we have one culture and one language? You know, it's interesting to consider that question because we get such a short look in the scope of the of the biblical narrative of a pre-fall world. You know, in the in the overall picture of humanity that we have, that the Bible records for us, and then that we have through our own experience in the history of the world, even secular history of the world, we're talking about almost all of it transpiring in the events subsequent to the events of Genesis three after the fall, after the events that happen underneath the tree. So it's hard for us to know fully what the world would have looked like if humanity had not sinned. We have a picture of it reflected in the garden, but what does it look like as mankind is fruitful and multiplies and fills the earth and subdue it? If, if they were to carry out that vision, is there still one language? Is there still one dominant culture? Or do people go out and as they go out, and they accommodate themselves to the places in which they're living and the different geological factors and geographical features of the places in which they're living, does culture begin to reflect those differences as people go out and, and things like language begin to change? So I think it's it's probably too narrow to say um, that we would always have had one language without um, the fall. That being said, we we often find throughout the Old Testament, that a multiplicity of languages is an act of God's judgment, not only in Babel, but there's a warning that's given to the Israelites that they will, if they depart from the covenant, that they will hear, uh, be in the hearing of those who speak languages that they do not know. So there's this, there's this idea that language, the confusion of language or their spread of language, is connected to a disunity among peoples. Uh, that is in some ways rectified in the vision of Revelation that we see people from every nation, tribe, tongue gathered before the throne room of God. Uh, And yet what we find in the opening chapters of Genesis is unified language that human beings as image bearers are able to communicate intelligibly with one another as a way of entering into community. And that's what's compromised at Babel. So I think we can say at the very least, it would have looked different even if there was a multiplicity of languages I think there would have been an ability to comprehensibly communicate between all image bearers without the effects of the fall. In your sermon, you briefly mentioned a connection between the city of Babel and the city of Babylon in the Bible. Yeah. Can you provide any further explanation as to how they're related? Well, one in one way that they're related is that we find that the people who eventually become the Assyrians, Babylonians, they flow out of this man, Nimrod, who is the founder of the Tower of Babel that we we read there in Genesis 10 that then spills over into chapter 11. And so the people that will come from him that start out at Babel, and then of course the, the name for Babel is etymologically related to the later Babylonians and the city of Babylon. So there's this linguistic and there is this um, genealogical connection through Nimrod to the people who will become the Babylonians. But then there's this ongoing spiritual thematic connotation uh, between Babel and Babylon 
that occurs. And I mentioned in my sermon Sunday that even beyond the Babylonian Empire, Babylon, the city of Babylon, becomes itself a broader metaphor for the city of man or the kingdoms of mankind that wage war against the kingdom of God. Babylon becomes a symbol of human resistance to the kingdom of God. In Isaiah chapter, or excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter 50, uh, 51, verse 53, we, we find this, though Babylon should mount up to heaven and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. So there's this promise that even though Babylon, uh, again, more than just this city, but this now type of man's resistance of, against God, though she should rise herself up to this great height, she should mount up to heaven. Well, where have we heard that language of mounting up to heaven before? All the way back in Genesis 11, they built a tower that they said, let's make a tower with its height to the heavens. And so Babylon is here being connected to this ancient tower at Babel. So we find these typologies being brought forward that begin with human resistance to God's plans in pride there in Genesis 11, brought forward to the Babylonian empire, and then later metaphorically brought forward to the the symbol of Babylon as a metaphor for human resistance to the plans and purposes of God. In Genesis 11 verse 7, God says, come let us go down. And similarly, in Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Would you say that this is actually a quote that Moses is inspired by God to write? Or is Moses using language that fits the story he inspired to tell about God and creation and God and Babel? Yeah, I think that Moses is recording um, quotes uh, from God and also from the men and women of the city of Babel here because they reflect some of that same language when they say, come, let us build a tower. And so they're using language, borrowing language uh, that God is himself using. Um, so when we speak about how, how does Moses know these words that were spoken when he was not there present? And we have to remember that as we um, interact with the scriptures, we're dealing with really two authors. We're dealing with the human author, and we're also dealing with the divine author, that God stands behind the, the text of scripture as his own words. They are God-breathed. And so within the inspiration of the scriptures, we find in the New Testament that as Paul speaks of it in his communication to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, that's what theonoustos means, it's, it's God-breathed out. Uh, Peter will refer to this as holy, that holy men wrote the scriptures as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, God preserved their personality in the writing of the text, and yet their words were being carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what was produced by their pens is authentically God's very words. So how does Moses know the exact events and speeches and content of things that came far beyond his own time? Well, he's writing uh, under the direction, by the direction, carried along by the Holy Spirit, who of course was present for these events. And so as we reflect on that, we find it's, I think, such a fascinating connection. Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image. Genesis 11, the people of Babel who are going to build a tower to the, he the heavens, they mimic language like God as though they are themselves God. Come, let us build a tower. And then God, kind of mocking them, comes, come, let us go down and see this city in this tower that the children of men build. And so he is 
in his own condescension to them and using their same language back on them, he is demonstrating he alone is God. There is no one else. So this language in Genesis eleven seven and Genesis one twenty six, if that's actual language, mm-hmm. would you say that God is speaking as the Trinity or could he be speaking to his angels? Yeah, there are those kind of two alternative ways of viewing the text, not only here, but also reflecting back to Genesis 1, where we see this same language being used. Is God speaking here in a triunity of persons such that this come let us is a reflection of that, uh, of the multiple persons in the Godhead? Or is he ref- is He speaking here to the council of heaven, the angelic hosts, and uh, in bringing them in as witnesses to what he is doing? I think it is My view is that in both in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 11, we have triune language being spoken of. Uh, the The triunity of God is never explicitly defined in the Old Testament. In the progressive revelation of the scriptures, it is a developing, unfolding truth that we catch glimpses of, but that is not more fully fleshed out until the New Testament comes and Christ comes as the embodiment of God in the flesh as the second member of the triune Godhead. He is God the Son. And then he promises to send a helper who is God the Holy Spirit. And then we find these doxologies that are uniting these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as equally worthy of worship and praise. And so we find that they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful together that is progressively revealed throughout the scriptures. But in the Old Testament, it is only done in shadows and in types. And there are, we'll say, foundations being laid upon which the house is later built, but only the foundation level gets laid in the Old Testament. And so one of those glimpses that we catch of the fact that there is a community of persons in the Godhead and that they are co-equal together is in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 11, the language, come let us, that God's activity is somehow a community activity in the oneness of his being. There is somehow a, a, a multiplicity of persons, a triunity of persons. So a hint that will be later fully developed throughout the rest of scripture and then explicitly given to us in the New Testament and particularly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.